Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I would go to Marvin's house. He'd be sitting at the piano and he was writing the songs of what's going on. And I'd just be sitting there with him just waiting for him to finish so we could go do something. And he turned to me and said, Smoke, God is writing this album now. Whoa, oh, mercy, mercy. Smokey Robinson remembers witnessing history as his friend Marvin Gaye wrote the 1971 classic, What's Going On? The greatest album of all time, according to Rolling Stone. It's a record that transformed Gaye from pop star to socially conscious poet. The songs were cries of frustration, anger, and yearning, but they also offered healing to a nation in turmoil. It was a statement so bold and so different from anything Gaye had done before that Motown, the label that made him a star, originally refused to release it. Its songs tackle drug addiction, police violence, and the dire state of the environment, and flow together seamlessly, almost as though Gay was delivering a single, 35-minute sermon. Fifty years after its release, What's Going On still sounds as poignant and urgent as ever. One, two, three, four, five, break down, baby. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone, and this is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums on Amazon Music. In our season finale, we're featuring our number one album on the list, Marvin Gaye's 1971 masterpiece, What's Going On? By 1970, Marvin Gaye had spent a decade at the heart of the Motown machine. Founder Barry Gordy ran the Detroit label like a pop assembly line. Artists were the face of the operation, but they didn't hold much power. Choice of material, singing style, even social etiquette were all closely overseen by Gordy and the company. For a time, this worked in Gay's favor. After getting his break with doo-wop group The Moon Glows, the Washington, D.C.-born singer went solo in the early 60s and scored a string of hits for the label. Gay married Gordy's sister Anna in 1963, and right around the same time, he established himself as Motown's romantic lead, recording dreamy duets with a series of female singers. Gay found his ideal counterpart in rising star Tammy Terrell and duetted with her on classics like Ain't No Mountain High Enough. But shortly after the pair cracked the top 10 with Your Precious Love, their lives changed very suddenly, mid-concert. Tammy collapsed in his arm on stage. Marvin's younger sister, Ziola Gay, remembers that day in October 1967. Terrell was just 22 at the time. She was diagnosed with a brain tumor and died less than three years later. Marvin had recently scored a monster solo hit with I Heard It Through the Grapevine, but just as his career was reaching new heights, Ziola saw a change in her brother. When Tammy died, he said all of a sudden he 
You know, it's like God talked to him and told him to get up and do this. So that's when he began to start writing what's going on. Marvin stopped playing live and threw himself into songwriting and producing for singing group The Originals. He even took a shot at a pro football career. After befriending two Detroit Lions players, Gay started training seriously in hopes of making the team. He got a tryout with the Lions, but having never even played high school football, he wasn't exactly NFL material. Around this same time, his brother Frankie was serving in Vietnam and would often send letters home detailing his experiences in the war. When Frankie returned home, the two brothers reconnected. He and Marvin would stay up late talking at the family home in D.C. Marvin reflected on this period in an interview from the early 80s. I think it was uh, around 1969 and 1970, about that period at Motown Records, when I stopped thinking so much about my erotic fantasies and I started to think about the war in Vietnam and my brother, who used to um, tell me, write, respond with some pretty horrible stories about the war. Frankie told all the stories of Vietnam. Ziola remembers them too. I mean, I'm sitting there listening with my mouth open, you know, the things that he went through, the conditions of the war, and he had a position that was very, very dangerous. He was doing communication, so that means he had to ride with the generals and the lieutenants and the jeep, and everybody know that's the first thing they want to knock out is the communication. He would go down dirt roads and he would see heads on the pole of GIs. And it was just very, very, very taxing, you know. And I just thank God he came back with all his faculties in order mentally. So he would tell Marvin the stories too. And it just made Marvin feel that much more sad. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you die. Meanwhile, Gay had been keeping a close eye on the civil rights movement and the ongoing struggles of Black Americans. He had started to feel that he had outgrown his pop roots as early as 1965, while he watched the Watts riots in L.A. There was a great deal of unrest in America. The Martin Luther King crusades and the shootings of the kids on the college campuses and the um, left wing strongly opposed to the principles of the right wingers and I don't know, I, I sort of saw the country headed for modern-day civil war, in a, in a sense. I was quite alarmed. In any event, it caused me to look at society and take a hard look at society, and something happened with me uh, during that period, and I, I felt a strong urge to write music and to write lyrics that would uh, touch the souls of men, and in that way, perhaps, I felt I could help. He once told David Ritz, the author of the definitive gay biography, Divided Soul, Quote, I wanted to throw the radio down and burn all the bullshit songs I had been singing and get out there and kick ass with the rest of the brothers. Ziola Gay says that she wasn't surprised by her brother's new perspective. Whatever was going on, he would feel it. And he, he wanted to sing about it. And yes, he did not want to do a love song. Then He wanted to write something that the world could hear and maybe learn from it. The key to Gay's musical shift came in the form of an unfinished song brought to him by Ronaldo Obi Benson, a member of the Four Tops. While on tour in the Bay Area, Benson had seen police attacking protesters in Berkeley's People's Park. In Ben Edmonds' book on the creation of What's Going On, Benson says, quote, The police was beaten on them, but they weren't bothering anybody. I saw this and started wondering what the fuck was going on. 
what is happening here? With help from his upstairs neighbor, lyricist Al Cleveland, Benson started channeling his questions into a song. Benson originally hoped that his group, The Four Tops, would perform What's Going On, but the others turned it down. Benson even offered the song to Joan Baez, but that too fell through. Finally, he brought it to Marvin Gaye. At first, Gaye wanted to bring the song to the originals, the Motown group he was producing at the time. But Benson, with some help from Gaye's wife Anna, finally convinced Gaye to record it himself. David Ritz interviewed Gaye extensively for his book. He explains the singer's mindset at the time. He was part of this Motown machine where the producers were in charge and the producers would compete to have the major artists sing their song. And he wouldn't have anything to do with any of that. He just was not interested in being a cog in this machine anymore. So Gay touched up the melody and lyrics, earning a co-writing credit on the song. He worked with arranger David Van De Pitt to flesh it out and recorded the track in Detroit in the summer of 1970 in Motown's famous Snake Pit studio. Gay played piano, chain-smoked joints, and even invited two of his friends from the Detroit Lions to help out with background vocals. Gay was convinced that What's Going On was the creative breakthrough he had been longing for. But Motown head Barry Gordy disagreed. Strongly. Barry thought it wasn't him because Marvin was our sex symbol. Gay's label mate, Smokey Robinson. That's how we booked him and how we advertised him. And so he was our sex symbol guy, you know. So Barry thought it was a bad move for him to sing something political. Gordy reportedly called the song the worst thing he had ever heard in his life and told Gay that by pivoting to a more socially conscious style, he was threatening his career. Gay responded by essentially going on strike, refusing to record for Motown again until the company put out the single. And Marvin said, no, he says, time for this, man. And he stuck to his guns no matter what. And he also was very, I think, brave because Gordy you know, was an alpha king. As David Ritz explains, any Motown artist standing up to Gordy was highly unusual, not to mention risky. So for Marvin to say, not only am I not going to entertain any of these songs that the producers are handing me every day, I'm going to go away, I'm going to go into my cave, I'm going to pray, I'm going to meditate, I'm trying to figure out who I am and what it is I have to say, that's a big deal. This is what the country needed. This was the comfort. This was the reflection. This was the kind of musical medicine that the culture required at that time. And that's why it became such an enormous hit. Desperate for new material from the singer, Motown finally relented and released What's Going On as a single in January 1971. It sold 100,000 copies in just one day. So Barry had to go to him and apologize. Smokey Robinson remembers Barry Gordy changing from deeply skeptical of Gay's new direction to insisting the singer record an entire album in the What's Going On vein. He gave him creative liberty, but on an insanely tight deadline. Since Gay had booked an upcoming acting job in L.A., Gordy told him he needed to finish the record in just one month. So Gay called on his most trusted collaborators, like his wife Anna and songwriters like L.G. Stover and Motown elevator operator James Nix. He re-teamed with Ronaldo Benson and Al Cleveland for the stirring plea, Save the Children. I just want to ask a question. Who really cares 
save a world in despair? Who really cares? By himself, Gay composed Mercy Mercy Me, The Ecology, a heartfelt lament for a planet racked by pollution. And when it came time to record the rest of the tracks for the LP, he called on Motown's legendary session players, known as the Funk Brothers, along with arranger David Vandepitt, who gave the album a luxurious orchestral sound. The result was a series of tracks like the uplifting, gospel-infused God is Love that were as elegant as they were funky. The record starts with the sound of casual conversation at a party. From there, each track flowed into the next. That's why this album is one of Aaron Neville's greatest inspirations. It was like each thing was studded together. It was a total package. And that also makes it such an important album. Again, David Ritz. Because all the pieces of the tapestry are sewn together with sort of a masterful touch. It's a seamless album. I got it the first day it was out, and I'd have people come over and say, listen to this, and nobody would move until they heard the whole thing. From the moment Ziola Gay heard the album, she saw her brother differently. When the album arrived to the house, I sat down and I played it, just me by myself, and I'm reading the lyrics, and that's when Marvin, my brother, became Marvin Gaye, the artist, to me. I was just blown away. Looking at the album's cover, you can see Marvin Gaye looking away from the camera, his collar turned up as it's raining around him. He told David Ritz, quote, I also grew a beard, which back then was not all that common for Black men. Black men weren't supposed to look overtly masculine. I had spent my entire career looking harmless, and the look no longer fit. I wasn't harmless. I was pissed at America. To Ritz, Gay's appearance on the cover perfectly mirrored the music of what's going on. He's standing in the rain. It's gloomy. He's wearing a raincoat. He's kind of letting you know that I'm not going into a studio to look like a pop star. I'm not going to be clean shaven. You know, this is where I'm at. It's a gloomy day in the United States. He had the look on his face to me like a disciple. Again, Ziola Gay. He had that that look like, I know what I'm talking about because I was told to tell you about this. If Marvin Gay looked like a disciple on the cover of What's Going On, it's likely because that's how he felt at the time. Well, Marvin was very spiritual and a lot of people probably didn't know how spiritual he was because we were raised in the church, but his spirituality went beyond the church. He would go and just meditate and he felt God talking to him. And that's when he really told me, he said, Z, I was really inspired by God's words. I, I could feel it. He, he really wrote the album. I didn't write it. I was almost like the vessel, you know, and that's how he referred to the album as him being the vessel and writing what he was guided to write. Gay himself would later joke about the idea of what's going on being divinely inspired, 
Rolling Stone editor Ben Fong Torres interviewed Gay for a 1972 cover story and asked him how he was able to weave together such a cohesive and relevant album. What you're trying to find out, I imagine, is uh, am I really a genius or a fake? Oh, no. And I think I'm a fake. <laughs> but a lot of people ask me the same question. They say, well, listen, tell me this. How did you put that damn album together, you know? I'm, I'm not like you. I mean, really explain that, will you, you know? kind of bugs me a little bit sometimes, but I say, well, I don't know, I just, it just happened. And it really did. It happened through divinity. Somebody said, okay, you're divine, and okay, okay, so you be divine, I'll be rich. <laughs> Marvin Gaye would never again make another album quite like What's Going On. Stevie Wonder and others followed in his footsteps, crafting gorgeous, socially relevant statements in the vein of What's Going On. Gay's own later albums returned to the themes he'd explored in his early Motown days. Love, romance, and heartbreak. You know, the whole Motown operation began changing. So he was conscious of that. And also, I think it weighed on him. What am I going to do next? How can I top this? And that's why I have such respect for Let's Get It On. Once he gives up the idea of I got to outdo what's going on, and he goes, no, 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 here I am. I've kind of fallen in love with this woman. I'm in a sexual frame of mind. I want to liberate. Then he's able to create another sort of masterpiece. But he was tortured. Marvin was a tortured artist. And part of what tortured him, I think, throughout his career was that he never did another What's Going On. Marvin Gaye died in 1984, shot by his own father, following a lifetime of conflict between them. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the answer, for only love can comprehend. Fifty years after What's Going On, the album's continued relevance is impossible to miss. Here's Smokey Robinson again, talking to Rolling Stone's Brian Hyatt. You've said that Marvin Gaye's uh, What's Going On is your favorite album of all time. And we recently did a big poll at Rolling Stone, and it actually just was uh, selected as the best album of all time on, on that poll. Fantastic. Fantastic. Do you know what, Brian? Because it's prophecy, man. You mm. listen to what's going on and what's he talk, what he's talking about in that, in that record, man, is happening more now than it was then. You know mm. what I'm saying? It's prophecy. I would go to Marvin's house, he'd be sitting at the piano, he was writing the songs of what's going on. And I'd just be sitting there with him, just waiting for him to finish so we could go do something. And he turned to me and said, Smoke, God is writing this album, man. I said, oh yeah? He said, yeah, man. And he said, I'm just sitting here, baby. He said, God is writing this album. So I believe him because it's prophecy. Today, as the country remains plagued by racism and deep cultural divides, Ziola Gay feels like what's going on speaks as much to the present as it did to the time in which it was written. Because the same things are happening now that happened when the album came out. Everything from police brutality to everything. It, it, he hit on it. That's why it's timeless. Here's Aaron Neville again, talking to Rolling Stone's Hank Steamer. Tell me a little bit more about you know how the message strikes you and why you think it's still resonating with people. It was before its time. And now it's right on time. You know, if it came out today, it would be, you know, just like it was meant for today. I wish Marvin was still with us, you know. I think he would still be giving us a message. So you think if he was still alive that he might be doing like a, another what's going on type of record in this year? Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. 
got a lot to, to write about, you know? At the end of our conversation with Ziola Gay, we asked her what she thinks that message would have been. It's about love. It's about loving your neighbor, your family, or yourself. And he would want people to listen again and come together. That's what he would want. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On ranks number one on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. After this short break, I'll speak with filmmaker Spike Lee, writer Nelson George, and musician Devin Gilfillian about why this record still resonates. Stay with us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Nelson George. I'm an author and filmmaker written extensively on blind music history, interviewed Marvin Gaye on a couple of occasions, so I'm glad to be here today. My name's Devin Gilfillian. I'm a singer-songwriter from outside of Philadelphia, moved to Nashville, and uh, I decided to record and cover all of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On from uh, you know the entirety of the album, so that's, that's why I'm here, and yeah, it's great to be here with y'all. Hello, my name is Spike Lee. I'm a filmmaker representing the People's Republic of Brooklyn, New York. Yo, yo. <laughs> Thank you all. Do you each remember the first time that you heard What's Going On, the album in full? I was in high school, 1971, John Dewey High School in Coney Island, and they had a library. The school had a library and also turntables and headphones. So I spent a lot of time in the library not reading, but listening to What's Going On with Headphones. You know, I don't actually remember the first time I heard it all the way through. I know it was in the 70s. I don't have as good a precise a memory of Spike. I do remember those records on the air dominating the early 70s. And I do, when I finally did hear the whole album, I was knocked out by the, the continuity, the fact that it flowed almost like one song, which was very radical in pop music in general, definitely in black music, black commercial music. So I knew I was listening to something that was unusual and in many ways groundbreaking. I really didn't listen to the entire album from front to back until this year. And I, my dad's a wedding singer. So as a kid would, would wake up and he'd be like, 
he'd be singing what's going on he'd be singing inner city blues and mercy mercy me like the hits because he'd have to learn them for weddings and stuff but really it, it wasn't until i until after george floyd was killed that i was like the song what's going on pulled me and then i fell into the album the entire albums and that's when i was like wow this is exactly what needs to be said right now yeah there's such a a timeliness and an urgency to the album that still feels really fresh today and while people were voting for the new list that was all throughout last year through 2020 around the same time Devin that you were listening to the album for the first time in full and kind of finding a new resonance for yourself so if we can get to a little bit about why the album did jump up the way it did from number six on the 2003 list to number one on last year's list and why it appealed to the voters in this moment. Why number one, I think that the the people were voting are much more diverse than it was back in 2003. And I would also like to say that uh, great art over the years changes. Sometimes people don't get it and, and it just lays there and then a moment comes and it jumps up. So we're talking about Rolling Stone magazine and 2003, what's going on with six? Now it's number one. So 2003, number one, Sergeant Pepper, the Beatles. Number two, Pet Sounds, Peach Boys. Number three, the Beatles Revolver. Number four, Bob Dylan. And number five, Rubber Soul. And what's going on with number six? So you might say the world has changed since 2003. Do you agree, Mr. Nelson George? <laughs> hey, the relevance of those other albums, Sgt. Pepper spoke to, spoke to a certain thing. Pet Sound spoke to a certain thing. But they don't speak to now. They don't speak to the moment. I was looking at the, you know, look at the track listing on um, what's going on. Uh, you know, there's a song about the ecology. Uh, there's a song about inner city blues, makes you want to holler. Uh, Save the children. Uh, you know, all of those things, what's going on? Holy Holy, which is a fantastic song in its own right. In other words, you can look at the titles alone without even getting into the content of them, which, you know, which we will. And you say, these songs are about now. They're about the timeless struggle of America uh, and the unfulfilled promise of America. I think that more than anything, Black voices are actually being listened to right now in a new way that they weren't in 20. 19, you know, in 2019, Black Lives Matter was barely supported, barely. And now after George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, people are getting on board. People are finally, you, you see our friends, our, our white friends who are finally like, okay, yeah, no, Black Lives do matter. And, and I, I think that people are actually listening and, and saying, oh, wait, and actually going back to this album and like looking for for ways to to relate to the black experience more than anything. And, and I think that that has opened up. Let's just talk about the music for a minute. The arrangements on the record are unbelievable. When I say mm. unbelievable, I mean to say the layering of, I mean, if you listen to what's going on, Marvin had two different lead vocals that yeah. then play off each other back to back. He's scat singing throughout the entire album. He's scat singing all through the album. Tenor saxophone, alto saxophone play huge parts in the sound of the album. So he's drawing from jazz traditions. He's drawing from innovations from that. He's a doo-wop guy as well. Don't forget that. The, the vocal arrangements of the harmonies are amazing. And he's a gospel kid. And 
the range of, of um, disciplines within the traditions of Black American music and classical music, because before he made the album, apparently he was visiting and going to see concerts at the Detroit Philharmonic that year, sort of. And it made that. So when you look at all of those things that come together musically, mm. and I'm just talking about the vocal, you're seeing a work of art that obviously at a super high level, and then you put the politics that are there on top of it. For this album, Marvin's older brother was in Vietnam. He did three tours. He was a radio operator. So he was writing Marvin from Vietnam. So he Marvin was getting a first-hand account of Vietnam. And also Marvin was in Detroit seeing the bloods, the black soldiers who were coming back in caskets, messed up. And I think that was the basis for the album, you know. You know, it started out, remember what's going on, it was a single first. And then he went back into the album. He went, I mean, because Barry Gordy wasn't hearing it. Spike, I, I want to talk a little bit about to what you were just talking about with the backdrop of the Vietnam War and this album coming out and the connections with his own brother, with Frankie, who served in Vietnam. And your film, Defy Bloods, features what's going on so heavily in it. Can you talk to us a little bit about choosing this album as a backdrop to your own film, to the story that you're telling about Black veterans? Thank you. When I got this script for, which eventually turned out to be Defy Bloods by Lloyd Levin, it was not, it was not about Black soldiers. Oliver Stone had turned it down. So I read the script, my co-writer, Kevin Wilma, and I said, you know what, we gotta make this brothers. So automatically, I thought about Vietnam. I was blessed to be born in 1957, two years, I mean, two years <laughs> early, so I cannot be drafted. So I remember, <laughs> I mean, the Vietnam War was no joke. And at the height of the Vietnam War, a third of the fighting force in the Vietnam were black soldiers with the bloods. Yet we were only 10% of the population. So I automatically knew I wanted to use what's going on as like the spine for this film. I mean, that, that, that came to me. I didn't have to think about that. Since you were so immersed in these stories, what do you think it was about this album that may have appealed to black soldiers, black veterans now experiencing the war at that time? He laid it out. As I said before, I'm, I'm going to be short so Nelson no, no, see you looking at it. You're ready to jump. <laughs> but he was getting, as I said before, he was getting a first-hand account from his brother Frankie, who's already operated, and did three tours. I mean, uh, uh, black GIs were very... If you look back at any black exploitation movie from the early 70s, there's always characters in there wearing old army jackets, the green jacket, because there were so many brothers who'd been in service there and then came back out and then came back to a place where, you know, soldiers were not at that point were not being celebrated because the war was very controversial. There was a lot of addiction that happened in, in Nam because they were selling heroin outside the, the gates of many of, of the camps stations where uh, soldiers were, and it was a lot in Saigon. So so they came back to a world which was not welcoming, right? Uh, and so I think Marvin's album captures that sense of spiritual conflict and spiritual yearning. At the end of it, it's, it's still a spiritual album, even though it's a quote-unquote protest album. 
the gospel and the church feeling that Marvin and his collaborators created is very palpable. Devon, I guess, I mean, I, I was yeah. curious to see how, as you as a younger person, tied, you know, plugged into that. You know, I see all of that thinking back to 1971 and, you know, I was born in 1990, you know, so I, I can only looking at the picture that Marvin paints with what's going on. I, I feel I see the struggle of of addiction, you know, with flying high and I see the complicated relationship with God, with God is love and also with God is love, just pleading to the world like to look and right now, when I hear God is love, I think of the evangelistic demographic that we have in this country, especially the the white even evangelical church. You know, it's like, why is there this separation of understanding of what God is? God is love for everyone, no matter what color. When I listen to that, I think back to, I'm like, wow, that's what Marvin was trying to say in 1971. And it's crazy. It's amazing the idea that God is love is a controversial uh, sentence. Right. <laughs> the thing I feel is the spirituality of this album and also the black church. And mm-hmm. then, you know what? He gets killed by his father, who's a preacher. It's so sad and so In so fact, complicated. in my film, Jungle Fever, that's where it comes from. Wow. When Ozzie Davis kills his son, Played by Samuel Jackson. That is directly from Marvin being murdered by his father. That's where it came from. I interviewed Marvin a couple of times in the early 80s. One time for right after he came back from his sort of exile in Europe. And I asked him about why, you know, was he going to make another What's Going On? And his answer was essentially the spiritual and challenge of making that original album was one that he had not been able to return to. He had not been able to get to that same place. And I think that speaks to what's going on is special because it's a man at an at a artistic crossroads, dealing with social stuff, but also going to a place which is very hard to return to. You don't make masterpieces every day. And he made some great records after, no doubt about it. But that particular nexus of artistic expression, social anxiety, and that just period of the 70s where everyone was just pushing the envelope musically, they all came together in this record. Takes all that pressure to make the perfect diamond, for sure. I never got to meet Marvin, so that's a blessing for you. Amazing. Oh yeah, it was was amazing, and there's a whole story about that, but I mean, the the bottom line, that year I saw him perform twice. Uh, He performed in the Circle Star Theater in the Bay Area, and then it then later at Radio City. And as you probably know from the narrative of his life, he had just come back from Europe and it was in a, the show in, in the Bay Area was fantastic. He rearranged some of the songs. It was just amazing. By the time he got to New York, the demons had caught up to him, man. It was a very scattered show at Radio City. He'd lost a lot of his falsetto by then. And it wasn't about a year later that the you know the, his death happened. So coming back to the States... You know, it was a it was a dark spiral. Mm. So again, I think that's why, in one way, that, Mar- that what's going on is so powerful is that it is a guy who's at the height of his powers. But even on this record, when you look at songs like "Flying High," addiction, yep, this addiction becomes a bigger part of his narrative. The last fifteen so years of his life, especially with how 
you know, there was so much risk with this album. It was against Barry Gordy's wishes that Marvin would take this political turn. But I'm curious what we would have lost if Marvin had not taken this risk. What would music have lost in the way that he revolutionized art, black art for everyone? I think to me, when I look at what's going on, I look at the context. Curtis Mayfield was doing Superfly and albums like that. There was the Gamblin' Huff records coming out of Philadelphia. There was Gil Scott Heron. There was Miles, you know, expanding and doing what he was doing with music and, and plugging in his trunk. That was an expansive time artistically. I would make an argument that 68 to maybe 73 is one of the most important periods in Black music history in terms of the expansion of Black pop music. Where's so, Hendrix at? So, Where's Hendrix at? Come on now. Hendrix, yeah. yeah. You know, Band of Gypsies came out. So, so, so Stevie Wonder? I don't think... Stevie Wonder? Oh, come on. So, so in other words, you can't... That time was a time of a certain kind of uh, artistic expansion. I think, I think the only, I, here's what I would say. The question is, will one of the artists in this generation create a, a, a what's going on for now? Because if there's ever a time that speaks to a musical artistic expression that, that could be very powerful, this is a time. Spike in his own way, you know, if you look at the Five Bloods, it's about it's about someone in our in, in spiritual turmoil, you know, ultimately, and dealing with the politics around and then the spirituality within. So these are the kinds of works of art. They're hard to create. They don't happen every day. But I think that's the challenge that the gauntlet, if you will, that's been thrown down by, Mar- by Marvin Gaye. That is, who will em- embrace my heritage? Who can take these circumstances and and turn them into art? In 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 closing, for me, I want to give a shout out to my my young brother, Devon, because he knows the music. And here's here's a key thing. Thank I'm you. a film professor, tenured film professor, at NYU Graduate <laughs> Film School, where I went, that in. where Ernest Dickerson and Ang Lee, we were, all, we were all classmates, the class of 79. And what I tell my students is that there was some great shit before you were born. 100%. You know, shit didn't just start when you were born. <laughs> There's great shit, great movies, Great art was made before you were born. And I think that seeing my brother here is, is we need more young black and brown people and draw upon yep. and draw upon the legacy of the music. So true. So true. Yeah. Draw upon the legacy of that black music before you were born. Shit did not start with rap. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and I love Come on, Boogie Down, the Bronx, the birthplace of hip hop. I love it, but we it, we get we get power from our legacy, from our ancestors, black music, and and we just we have to know that we have to know what shit is built upon. Shit didn't start just when you when you got there. I mean that's what and that's what you know. It's funny because one of the criticisms of what's going on that he got from Barry Gordy was was about the scat singing. He said it was old fashioned, and that was a big bone of contention. So that's Marvin going, I'm making a 71 record, but this style of singing, of not using actual words, but using feeling, yep. is what I want to tap into. And that, that's the 40s, 50s. He was tapping back to stuff that was made before he was born in order to make a work of art that endures. You have to look back before you. If, if you're 
an artist in any way and, and you're not also a historian, then you're not you're not a good artist, in my opinion. That's you know? a, that's golden, right? What you just said is golden. Yeah. Say it again. Say, say, it again. say it again, young brother. Say it again. <laughs> if you're an artist and you're if you want to be a good artist and you're not a historian, you won't be a good artist. You have to be a good historian to be a good artist. You have to study what came before you. Yeah, that, that, that's it right there. As they used to say in the hood, that's the whole thing right there. That's, that's it. <laughs> like we said, all the greatest records came from what? 60s and 70s. Like that's what the, the list, if we look at it, like that's when the this country specifically was, you know, the pressure was there. We were singing and yelling about something and we can do that now. And as an artist, that's what I want to do now. And we have that opportunity. And, Devon, and we're looking at you hard now, man. We're, wait, we're gonna be waiting. Oh yeah, yeah. You, 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 hey. hey, come on, I'm coming. I'm, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> you, yeah, you got it the out. baton, baby. It's been passed to you. Don't, hey. don't drop it. <laughs> Spike, you ever need some music? You know, holler at me. Four right, by listen. four, four <laughs> by four relay. <laughs> and, and use them both. Those handed it to you. So what are you gonna do? <laughs> I'm here. Come on. <laughs> oh man. But I wouldn't want to think of a world that that this record didn't exist. I think, like you're saying, Nelson, that there were many other artists that were that were singing this message and doing it. But who knows who would have had the artistic integrity and the courage to go to Barry Gordy and order someone and and with this record and make the you know the beautiful hodgepodge of jazz soul and pushing music forward. I don't know. I don't know who would have done it, but. Well, I'm excited when I hear Kendrick Lamar, uh, you know, does what he does. I mean, I'm excited. I, I, I'm excited with, because that was another record, you know, to mention Kendrick Lamar's album, where he embraced the past and made it current. So there's always going to be a space for someone who can be a historian and a visionary. And I think that's the combination we're looking for. The 50th anniversary is coming up on this album. F-I-D-D-Y. 50, 50 years and I hope that Motown Records do it something righteous with the re-release whatever it is this has to be commemorated they gotta step up whoever those powers they gotta they, I don't it, whatever they do it can't be weak you know this 50 years anniversary so you can see Marvin Gaye's What's Going On ranks number one on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, which can be found on our website, rollingstone.com. I'm Brittany Spanos. This has been Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Nathan Brackett, and Gus Winner. This episode was produced by Hank Steamer, Emerson Eller, and me, mixed by Michelle Lands. Our senior producer is Jasmine Morris. Megan McBride is our production manager. Bridget Shelsey is our production assistant. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Raymond Roker and Morgan Jones. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. Special thanks to Fremantle for the Marvin Gaye interview you heard in this episode. We also want to shout out some other folks who help with this podcast. Liana Cervantes, Matt Cooley, Dan Helperin, Joe Hutchinson, Sasha Lecca, Kyle Rice, Emma Boardman, Rob Kulos, Corey Cooper, Stephanie Nordstrom, and David Merrick, as well as DJ Shadow for our theme music. You can find this podcast exclusively on Amazon Music, on the web, the mobile app, or on any Echo device. 
To hear more music, you can check out Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums playlist. That's the companion playlist to this podcast. Or for a deeper dive into Gay's music and influence, check out the playlist Rediscover Marvin Gaye, both on Amazon Music. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.